I had no idea that at the Jazz Butcher concert in 1997 in San Francisco, there was a rabbit in the audience. (laughs) Sit tight. It'll all make sense in a couple of seconds. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. is Mad World, Gary Jules' interpretation of the Tears for Fears song, which first appeared in the movie Donnie Darko. Which leads me to the rabbit. The rabbit in question is Frank, a kind of spiritual guide, I suppose you might say, who appears ominously <laughs> in, uh, in kind of dark visions to Jake Gyllenhaal's Donnie Darko character. He has an imposing and unforgettable presence about him, and... He is dressed in a rabbit costume. Now, over the years, Frank has become a kind of beloved cult character, so it only makes sense that the actor who plays him is a huge fan of a band who were beloved cult characters themselves, the Jazz Butcher. So, you're probably wondering who my guest is today. Well, my guest today on the program is the actor who plays Frank the Rabbit, James Duvall. Let me tell you a little bit about James Duvall, an actor of tremendous range and versatility. The Michigan-born and L.A.-raised James Duvall has had quite a career. He pretty much tore through the 90s, appearing in movies like The Doom Generation. I remember that one. That was a really good one. SLC Punk, Independence Day, Nowhere, and Go. And by 2000, his resume was packed. He did Donnie Darko in 2001, And since then, he's added over 40 films to his CV. Movies like Kaboom, Blue Dream, Chasing Ghosts, and Comic Book Villains. Now, the preservation society around Donnie Darko has kept Frank the Rabbit very much alive in the public consciousness. And speaking of preservation societies, it turns out that James and I have been a part of the same one for many years. We're both massive Jazz Butcher fans, and the Butcher Facebook group which actually counted the butcher himself, Pat Fish, as one of his active participants until his death last year, is a very special thing. It's a tight group made up of people who really care about each other and who understand the magic of the music and how it informed their lives. 
Now, admittedly, the Jazz Butcher is, for sure, a band that existed below the radar of the mainstream. But to us, they were, and they still are, the biggest band in the world. Actually, in many ways, the Jazz Butcher are just like Frank the Rabbit. Eternal, unique, and unforgettable to those who know about them. So, yeah, James and I were at the same show in 1997, and we talk about that here and so much more. Great guy, great chat. Here you go. My conversation with James Duvall, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. and we became fast friends immediately so it was it was quite a blow you know i'm sure as for you and as a lot of us it was very unexpected at least for us had you gone to northampton and hung out with him i have i have um yeah i i love that he i don't recall it being called fishy mansion is just his place on shakespeare road back then but uh um, I hadn't seen, I lost touch, you know, pretty much with everyone. I got off Facebook about a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, I think. And when I did that, it's kind of like I fell off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And what was kind of really frustrating for me is the last time I was in Northampton visiting Pat is I kept pestering Pat to open a Facebook account. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did. He did. I'm like, it's like, you really need to, this is an incredible way to connect with people in a way that MySpace doesn't. And I assure you, I mean, I wouldn't, I understand the, the reasons why you don't want to be on there, which is, and fair enough, I got off it for 10 years because of those reasons, partly. But, uh, so here I'm, I'm convincing him to get on it and he got on it. And I got off. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God you did, because it allowed him to really connect with his, his fans. I don't know if people who listen to the, to the show will know this, but but the Jazz Butcher is like this, this really small group of very ardent, rabid fans that that just adored him. Um, and it's almost like, I mean, you and I were at the same show in San Francisco, it turns out. Um, yeah, from the J- old, so before MySpace and Facebook, we had the old JBC mailing list. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and we all sort of communicated socially about his music with Pat sometimes himself. And uh, it was a great way for us to connect socially. And it's, you know, so coming back on when I did, right, when Pat started doing the Fishy Mansions thing, that's what brought me back to Facebook, believe it or Mm. not. I would not have come back for any other, I came back for Pat. And it was incredible to see what we kind of had on the mailing list, but of course, so much more broad, so much more detailed. You know, all of a sudden you could trade pictures and you know, message songs and post songs. And that wasn't really something you could do on MySpace or even, you know, uh, the, certainly not the JBC mailing list. Are they're one of those bands where, I mean, it sounds like you and I probably have similar record collections, but I remember where I was when I first heard the Jazz Butcher. 
I mean, it was like a transformative moment. I remember exactly where I was, what song it was. I remember, I remember every... that. I remember the same exact thing. I was actually making a joke about it with a friend of mine because um, I didn't get into Jazz Butcher until a little bit later. So I didn't get into him until Condition Blue. Okay. And what brought me in, originally pulled me into the Jazz Butcher was what he called his Art Misery Ballads. And I call it the Lonely Guy music. But uh, a friend of mine, the friend of mine who turned me on to it, he picked me up, I was 19 at the time, he picked me up in his, to appropriately put it, Shiva Hariri's father's Jaguar. So he picked me up in the Jaguar. It was a real one. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah. like this. Melly Hargreaves, it's not a real one. He picked me up in a real one. And I remember we were getting ready to get on the freeway and I can't remember what I had. I had something and I was going to put it in. He goes, no, no, we're not listening to that. We're going to listen to the Jazz Butcher. And I was like, and I said, I go, man, the who? I don't want to hear something called the Jazz Butcher. And he popped that on and she's a yo-yo first notes came out and okay well you know i i was wrong like okay you got me and by the end of the song i was in and then honey comes on and and as you know shirley mcclain and then rachel and i was lost i was lost by that point lost in it i think i just found and that's what i recall on that very first listen back in 92 i think i just found my new favorite band and going back and getting all the previous releases culted. He was kind of smart the way he turned me onto it because he kind of turned me onto it. So he first he played me that, then he played me if I liked it, which I did. Then he played me Cult of the Basement. So then I had to run out to Bleaker Bob's in Hollywood and buy Cult of the Basement. Then he played me Fish Gotech. Then I had to run out and buy Fish Gotech. <laughs> Big Planet, Scary Planet, and Bloody Nonsense. And at the time, Bloody Nonsense was a tough one to find. Yeah. Um, it didn't exist on CD. So I eventually got that. And then I was introduced into this whole other universe of Pat and the Butcher's music and background, of the, all the Max stuff and the early, the early Dave J stuff. And I had, so for me to come into that kind of later was a joy because it was, because that music's so much fun. I saw him on the Condition Blue tour and he covered Crocodile Tears and the Velvet Kosh by David J. And he, and I was bootlegging it. I had a little like Sony Walkman in my pocket and I was like, I had a little microphone and I was bootlegging the whole thing. And I have it, I have a shitty copy of it, but I still have it. And he did that song and he introduced it as this is a Bob Dylan song, <laughs> right? So and what he was really saying is this could stand next to anything Bob Dylan did. But of course, at the time I'm 20 years old. It's, not, it's you know, it's, what is it? 1990, 1991. I'm going to the record store and trying to find Crocodile Tears and the Velvet Kosh by Bob Dylan. And I'm searching <laughs> for months, man. And of course I never found it. Um, but he sent me on a wild goose chase. I took him literally and I shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think sometimes he, you know, he assumes, you know, maybe rightfully so that some people would know Crocodile Tears and the Velvet Kosh, but you know, we didn't have the internet or anything back then. So it was kind of, you know, it was tougher to pick up stuff back then than it is certainly today to absorb music or get turned on to new music. It was really, I was dependent on other people, really, myself. Oh, yeah. And up to that point, what were you, before you got into that car and Condition Blue blew your mind, what was your, what was your, your sonic menu? What were you listening to at that point? What were you into? I was listening, to, I was still listening to the Pixies, which carried over from high school. I was listening to the Smiths, because um, I was still kicking myself for missing their 86 show. Me too. I, I, so they were playing at Irvine Meadows, and I really wanted to go, and my friend had tickets, and I was 
13 and I was really just shy and I figured yeah you know I'll just I'm, I'm just and I and then last minute I backed out and I'm like I'll just go see them next 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 time <laughs> like, so that was that that at that point but as you know I was listening to a lot of like uh the late late 80s stuff that was k-rock was playing in los angeles and it, and it really was not until after i got into the butcher yeah i mean i guess i was listening to so since 86 we were listening to love and rockets because i remember we were going to lip sync kundalini express in high school okay um so i knew about love and rockets but you know it wasn't until i got, I got into my friend who got me into jazz butcher turned me on to the early wire he turned me on to the mecons uh, of course the early replacements um it's the most incredible taste in music yeah it's good to have a friend like i had a friend like that too and then you go down your own rabbit hole uh once they give you the prompt but for me yeah i'm a few i'm like three years older than you so in 86 i was 16 and i missed the smiths at the warfield here in san francisco and i mm. thought i'll see them next time yeah, yeah i'll just see them next year yeah <laughs> i'll see you next time yep I still uh, remember sitting in the car, actually, and they're like, well, that's it. Smiths are breaking up, but they're still releasing their, their final album, but they will not be touring for it. And all I could think of was like, oh, what's the big deal? So I could have seen him and I missed him, you know, and I really do like him. But I'm sure, you know, maybe some weird time, maybe they'll reunite sometime. <laughs> well, it was a tough year because because that was the year they broke up. And then also Max left the Jazz Butcher the same year. So that yeah. was a tough year for guys like us. And for, for our, you know, for our seminal bands as well. And, then, you know, so, I mean, for me in pretty much every way, and I still really do adore the Smiths and Johnny Marr. And, uh, but when the Jazz Butcher came, that kind of overtook everything. My appreciation for, you know, the music, uh, the characters, Pat, Max, Owen, Dave, uh, and, the, and some, you know, the other people who had gone on, you know, past them, even people I haven't met, but their personalities, you know, from the stories or in the tour, you know, like Peter Crouch or Kizzy, you know, who's not with us anymore. Yeah. Paul Barani and uh, Richard Formby. And it's really like this incredible cast of like conspirators that Pat's played with over the years. And, and I find it in a lot of ways, you know, and, and of course, you know, you have Sonic Boom in there. Mm. And uh, gosh, it's kind of slipping me at the moment. There's been so many great people. Pat's collab with the Blue Airplanes and Samishta, that vaguely familiar project that he was working on with Samishta Brahm and, you know, from 13 Frightened Girls and uh, Richard Formby was fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, Rolo from the Wooden Tops. There's another, yeah, so I can't believe I forgot Rolo. Rolo and Alice, who appears on some of his early stuff too. Alice Thompson from the early Wooden Tops. Of course, yeah. Kevin and Dave, you know, Kevin. Haskins. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The Haskins boys. All yeah. I mean, it's you're right. And all those people stayed really close to him. I mean, he he definitely kept friendships alive. Yeah, so I, I remember we were talking well, last time I was visiting him in Northampton, actually at Fishy Mance's. We were sitting out in the back patio, and I was telling him how I you know, catching up because we hadn't seen each other in quite a few years. And uh I was telling him about how I'd done a movie with Nikki Sudden, who was also a friend of Pat's. And I loved working with Nikki, actually adored him. But all I kept thinking while I was making that movie is I wanted to make a movie with Pat. <laughs> if I can make a movie with Nikki Sutton, then I'm going to make a movie with Pat someday. And so that's been kind of, it's been very bittersweet for me that I never got the opportunity to do something like that, where I think now in my place in my career, at least anyways, it's a, it would be a lot 
closer to fruition than it ever had been had Pat still been with us. I kept thinking that in the last few weeks, especially, it'd be a great script to, for the story of, of like Doreen and and Pat. It would be a great story to have that relationship between those two guys. Just seems like, like the last year or two of Pat's life just seemed like it'd be really interesting because they were together so much because of COVID. Um, and then, yeah, and then really, like Tieran was saying, he had not known anything really about Pat before, right. him, at least about his music. So it was, a, it was really a thing where they were just getting to know each other. And I think for a lot of people, especially, you know, Pat, you know, being older as well, it's like in COVID and being in quarantine, like I couldn't think of someone I'd rather be kind of quarantined with that helps you keep your head straight for someone who's been through so much and seems yeah. to keep his head somewhat still straight. You know, I'm certainly, I think it's important we don't canonize him because I don't think Pat would like that either, you know, because he certainly could be exurbic at times. <laughs> yeah, of but course. Like, but like most family members, you know, that's the thing. And you go through these moments and, and kind of where you really don't like the other person for a brief, you know, for a brief time. But really what it's done is it brings you closer, those sorts of things, because in it, you, you know, uh, you wouldn't be expressing yourself like that. I, I know for me, on an, with someone I didn't really care about. It also has made me think a lot about how, how the artist ages, you know, how, how an artist gets older, whether, whether it's an actor or a musician or a painter um, or a dancer, like how, because, how, you know, Neil Young has that famous quote about you don't retire from rock and roll, rock and roll retires you. But, you know, like you're, you know, if you're an actor and you know this, you know, you're, you're aging on screen because people can look at you 20 years ago and go, oh, you know, they can, it's like a marking of time. Um, music is the same kind of way in a different, different way. Um, but performance, people go, oh, that guy looks, looks all right. He's holding steady or he's not. Um, now I'm a huge fall fan in those last few fall shows with Marky e. Smith in a wheelchair. I mean, you have to admire the work ethic, but it wasn't pretty, you know? Um, but you start to wonder like, how does an artist age and what is the right way to do it? And, and I don't have an answer for that. I've just been thinking a lot about that. Does that ever cross your mind? Like how to approach that? I think to some degree, I don't know if this is going to make sense. To some degree, it crosses my mind more and more the older I get, but okay, I guess. And what it would be on, on the other hand though, I don't ponder it as long. I still think about it, but I don't ponder it as long. It's something that someone, a mutual friend of Pat said to me when he passed and it was taking it a little hard, uh, Debbie Langley. And, uh, and she was right. And she said, try not to take it too hard because the thing is, is that Pat lived life exactly the way he wanted to. And when he passed, he passed knowing how much he was loved. And that, you know, again, so even I think in, in death, he's still teaching me and inspiring me you know, as an artist myself and as an actor myself, I think that that's all I, you know, I could aspire to. I couldn't aspire for anything more, you know, to be able to live the life I want to live, to not compromise myself or my art, to be the person I want to be. And if I can, you know, live my life doing that and pass and then pass being loved by at least a few people, then I've done all right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a great philosophy. And I, I read something today on um, the label it's released in the last Jazz Butcher album. They were saying, you know, he died not having to give up the things he loved, drugs, drinking, smoking. He just was in the chair waiting for the coffee to brew and he didn't have to, he didn't have to give up any of those things. He, he really did die on his own terms, which is, there is something poetic about that. It, it's Pat Fish to the gills. <laughs> it's Pat Fish to the gills. It really is. And, and, 
Yeah, it's poetic and it's, you know, it's inspiring. It's inspiring that, you know, I think if anything, you know, as an artist, and I think as people in general, you know, we struggle throughout our lives to figure out who we are and what we're about so we can find our place here. You know, so to know anyone, someone, anyone, and especially someone as an artist or that is an inspiration to you, find that gives you, can give you hope that, you know, that, you know, maybe all our paths are different, but if they can find it, then we can find it too. I think you're right. And I think what really appealed to me about the Butcher's music was that I've always felt like an outsider, no matter what I've done. Even when I'm accepted, um, I've always felt like I didn't really belong. Um, and there were times where I was accepted. I, you know, I was class president, for God's sakes, but I never felt that I was really class president. I always felt that there was something, um, like I felt like an imposter. I didn't really feel yeah, like, like one of those. I know what you mean. Sometimes you know I, I mean? think that I'm only going to act until people figure out I'm a big fake. Exactly. I don't think it took them very long to figure it out. Um, but, my, but my point is, is that the Butcher's music always made me feel like they were songs for people like us, the people who were outsiders. Um, and it made being an outsider sound charming and fun. Did you, in your life, feel like an outsider growing up? Did you, did you have that sort of, does the music have that appeal for you as well? It does. And I, you know, to a large degree, I still feel that way. I think the only difference is when I was younger, I struggled with it. As I got older, I took comfort in, in that it's okay because that's who I am. And so I found myself. So being yourself doesn't, you know, becomes irrelevant whether you're fitting in with the quote status quo or not, just that you're doing what's true to yourself. And in that sense, it's been rewarding. And, you know, again, using Pat as a reflection of like, okay, you can do these things and not compromise yourself and be happy with the work that you're doing and continue to do, you know, if anything like Pat to get better and better, you know, his new albums, best thing he's ever done. It's remarkable to think that because, you know, like you look at, again, like the artist aging, like a lot of times you get to that point where it just feels like, you know, there's a dip in quality or it feels like self-parody. And with him, that just never, never happened. No, you know, he's, he's, you know, he says it in the song, Never Give Up, you know, that he played the new song. It's on the new album, but he played it during the Fishy Mansions to embrace, embrace your, it's like Dave J said, and, and, you know, embrace your dif dysfunction. And then he said, be brave. And it's like, okay, we all have them. You're, you're only human, but embrace that. That's what makes you in a lot of ways, beautiful and perfect is that imperfection that's only yours and you and no one else could do that. I wish I had known that at 16. I wish that I had known, cause I know it now, but yeah, I, it, it took a lifetime, right? It's like a lifetime. Said, people, wisdom doesn't come without its price. It takes a few chunks out of you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm 51 and I know it now. Um, I didn't know it at 16. You now you, it sounds like you went to high school in Southern California, but you weren't originally from, you were born in Michigan. Is that right? Yeah. In Michigan. And you guys made it your way out west? Yeah, we came out west pretty early when I was pretty young. And I went back and forth a little bit, to, you know, for the summers to visit family. But by 81, that was it. I was permanently here. And did you feel like an outsider in L.A.? Like, did you always feel like you always felt like an outsider? Really? Yeah. Well, the thing was, is part of the reason we had moved from the Midwest to the West Coast was because it's a little bit more progressive in the 70s. And since my father met my mother in Vietnam and America and US was technically still at war in Vietnam when I was born. So I, I was kind of, I kind of grew up with that, you know, 
not being very well to me i didn't see myself as anyone different than i was just like everyone else where i grew up but you know to everyone else i was kind of like what's the enemy doing here it's like your vc is like wait hold on to that i don't know what you're talking about no your your mother no, no no my mom's half french actually she's from south vietnam and you don't think twice about knowing those things as a child but all the other kids actually don't know know that so it was it was a rough upbringing to be quite honest in the 70s and by the time we got to the early 80s you know you know that stuff had kind of started to melt away being multicultural was a little bit more accepted i think and i started to fit in more but i think largely because of that i always felt like i was a cast out, outcast on the outside how did that land with you as a young man in, in you know in the 70s at age 8 9 10 like did that that must have taken a bit of a hit for you. That must have been hard in terms of. I think, to be quite honest, psychologically, it was it was a large blow because I wasn't, you know, I'm, I didn't see myself as different than anybody else, really. But they all kept pointing out that I was different. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, so if I go take a trip to little Saigon here in Westminster and people would go, oh, you speak Vietnamese to my mother and this is your son. Oh, so and it's like, this is your son? You speak Vietnamese? It's like, no, oh yeah, oh yeah, you're not Vietnamese. You grew up here, you don't speak the language. So I wasn't really accepted. <laughs> I, it was kind of being an outcast in either culture. I stood right on the boundary. And anytime I slipped over, I was pushed right back onto, well, you know, you're not, it's not where you belong. So you find your own footing and your own, you know, I think way. I mean, at least I did. And it, that helped a lot to formulate the person I was and I am now as I became older. And as an artist, there's a certain, it seems like the roles that you play suggest a kind of ethnic ambiguity. It seems like you can almost shapeshift with the roles that you play. Yeah, and I was kind of, you know, I feel fortunately, I, uh, and thank you for saying that, it's kind of been the goal, you know, is, you know, I think, you know, who's really great at that, who's multicultural is great at that is Keanu Reeves, is great at that. You don't even think about that. He's just a person when you watch him. Right. So it kind of takes all those. So you don't have to label him at all. I mean, it's kind of spending this time, especially now where everything's under a label, is to try to keep stripping away at that. So for me, in a lot of ways, that work has never changed. But because I've been doing it so long and I'm comfortable with it, it doesn't bother me anymore. It's like all par for the course. You know, yeah, you guys, you don't have to label anything other than human beings. Right. Um, I think Leighton Cousins posted it on the Facebook Jazz Butcher page, but something Pat said, and he was right, and I agree, but it's like, they're not immigrants, they're people, Pat Fish. And he's right, it's insane. It's like, once we start to dehumanize it, or, you know, which we see not just in the UK or in America, but we're seeing this everywhere. And it's like, everybody's nomadic from somewhere else at some point in time around the world. Yeah, and I think that it's always really nice when there's that moment where, like I'm Jewish, so we, so we're we've been outsiders for thousands of years. You know, it's like we've, got, we've done like we've taken it from from a lot of different cultures. We've gotten a, a lot of um, you know outsider status through the years. And I, but it's interesting because I was always really embarrassed. I had very curly hair until I met this really hot girl when I was 19, and she was like, "I love that your hair is curly." And then suddenly I was like, "Me too." And I was like, <laughs> I felt comfortable letting it be curly and long but but it, it almost i'm ashamed that it took somebody else to sort of shoehorn me into embracing something that was just natural um 
did it happen for you too? I mean, in terms of like how you learned to embrace who you were, um, say as a teenager, did it did it take someone else to go like you're 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 different in the coolest way? It it, it did. Um, I don't. It, it took it repeatedly. <laughs> I needed some banging over the head with it. I think. Yeah. Because um, I just couldn't believe it. It's like that's they couldn't be right. Uh, but from that, and it was through that, from that and through that, that I was able to find it again, help me find my footing. So it was like, it, it, maybe at first it's like a, a little embarrassing that it's outside confirmation, you know, it was just so important, but it ceases to be over time for me. So it was that that kind of got me to look at things. I'm like, well, people keep saying this, maybe I should really take a look at this. Okay, maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. Maybe I am beating myself up. Maybe I am self-sabotaging myself. And then, you know, also consistent work throughout the decades is to keep a fine line of not trying to fall over onto the other side or stay balanced because of where I was from and how I was treated. It's just to be happy to find my own way and my own footing. I'm not more spectacular or more wonderful than anyone else. They're just as spectacular, just as wonderful. They can choose to embrace that or not. But then that's their path. You know, the most that I can do for them is maybe through, you know, our art or an interaction is open the door and they walk through it. But they got to ultimately, you can open the door to show the path to someone, but they're going to have to walk through it or walk that path. Can't do that for them. So I do feel at least, you know, after all this time that I'm, you know, much more balanced in that sense. So I feel like I'm walk. I'm, I'm definitely walking my path now and have been for some time. Were your parents supportive of you embarking on a career in the arts? In the beginning, not at all. Really? <laughs> yeah, they thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you sell it? How'd you sell them the idea? Well, I, I had left before, pretty much before I was out of high school. I'd already left the house. So I just kind of just told them, this is what I'm doing now. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's not very smart, you know, for the long term. You know, what are you going to do? What, what if things don't work out? It, you're asking for a hard life. And I, and I did, I mean, in some ways I didn't know, but I understood what I, what I wanted and was willing to sacrifice. So in the end, it wasn't anything, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be where I'm at, actually. I feel very fortunate. So I'm glad I made the deci decisions I made and stuck to it. When you say you left the house, were you, like, you and buddies, like, living, you were living with friends and, like, you just took off and you decided to start your, your adult life? early exactly what it was yeah my friend had a place and said i can move in and look for a job so actually well that's actually first i had gotten a job working construction making a lot of money and that was my last year in high school so i was doing that and then i shot a nail through my finger and reconsidered that as a you know profession because if i'm doing that within the first three months of that job what else am i going to do to myself in <laughs> years yeah. So I reconsidered um, and shortly started pursuing after acting maybe a year after that. And that's when my friend invited me to Hollywood and that, that began that whole trek. How did you do in terms of the years of struggling? Um, how did you how did you handle those years when it was sort you were sort of like waiting for your big break is the wrong way to put it, but your way in, um, trying to get a foothold. How did you handle not being able to get a foothold? until you did it well you know it was, it was it's a strange ride because 
I was very lucky coming into town. I had, I first started coming to Hollywood before I moved to Hollywood to record shop. And um, they always got these great imports, which is well, when I got turned on to Pat, the jazz, but I got all this stuff, everything at least I could get that was in print ordered from the UK, I received and had got from either Bleak or Bob's or Vinyl Fetish on Melrose, as well as, you know, a couple of other local music shops in Los Angeles at the time. Um, but when I was hanging out at this coffee shop that was at the same it was on Melrose Strip. I met this director who actually asked me to come in and audition for him. And I came in and auditioned for a feature film and I got it. I got the part. So I actually had went in and made this movie when I shot this film when I was 18 and then had to wait two years for him to finish it because independent films didn't have computers back then. It was literally splicing the film and then doing the sync sound later on. So it took him a couple of years to do it. So even though I had done that film and I had some theater background, you know, when I was younger as well as doing uh, extra work when I was 16 and 17 before the construction job. Uh, so I had experience on set. So after I shot that movie, it kind of sat on the shelf and I couldn't get an agent. And, you know, it's, I wasn't related to anybody. I didn't have a SAG card, you know, can't get a job if you don't have a SAG card, but if you don't have a SAG card, how do you get a job? It was this really bizarre catch 22 where I sat out for two years. And I think at the time, one of the other actors was doing a theater group uh, that I joined the and I joined that theater group for about a year and did kind of this touring play around Los Angeles. And uh, that kept my instincts sharp. So by the time that movie had come out, believe it or not, that same director, Greg Araki, had written another movie and he uh, kind of wrote a part for me in it. Uh, called the doom generation and with rose mcgowan and then that sort of while i was filming that the first movie played at the sundance film festival back then which just then had started to you know become something because i remember meeting with agents saying oh you know i'm in this film it's going to be playing at sundance film festival and the agents would just look at me with you know kind of look on their face like what's that <laughs> so it wasn't kind of this yeah it wasn't this industry standard like as it's become so it was, although it was a really, you know, it was not this kind of entrance or kind of, I wasn't welcome with open arms in the beginning. You know, I kind of did have to like, you know, shoot my movie and then sit it out. By the time that the movie screened and started to play at festivals and whatnot, that really sort of opened the door for me, for everything, including you Independence Day. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Because Doom Generation, which I love, was before Independence Day. Yeah, so I, I had then shot Doom Generation. After I filmed Doom Generation, I was working at a restaurant and the director and writer of uh, Stargate, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich came in and recognized me from my first movie with Greg, Totally Effed Up. And so like, oh, you know, you're still acting, still working in the movies. I'm like, yeah, you know, can I take your order? And by the way, I have another movie at Sundance if you were at Sundance. And you know, I mean, the, the, the cliche, the cliche i was there waiting of course i'm still like i'm your waiter <laughs> um and then those, those guys were sweethearts and I'm, they're still sweethearts now i mean i haven't spoken to them in many years but they were very very supportive and i remember said all right well you know i'll see you at sundance and sure enough i was at the sundance film festival coming down the center of the theater to do the q a and 
I remember Roland kind of just kind of pokes me in the shoulder and looks at me because it's a crazy movie. And he looks at me and he's just laughing. And, you know, that's a crazy movie. And all I thought to myself is, well, there goes that job. <laughs> down and did the Q&A and uh, it was so great to see him there. But, you know, it was because the film's very extreme. I mean, I'm proud of it, but it's extreme. It's definitely not your studio fanfare. And um, I remember him showing up at the restaurant a couple weeks later and then De De Dean Devlin and himself kind of, offered me the role right there while I was their waiter. I mean, I still had to audition for it and go through the regular process, but that was something else because they were a fan of Gregor Rocky movies. You know, they saw his movies and then wanted to work with me. And that, again, I think it's kind of crazy twice, I think, in my life. I've had that experience where I feel like I was discovered twice. <laughs> and all that, which, to be honest, for me as the pinnacle is to go to the premiere in London and invite Pat Fish, the jazz butcher, and he shows up. Oh, he came. Oh, that's how I met him. Oh, man. Because I was such a big fan. I was playing his music all the time and I was pushing him on the direct. <laughs> I, I mean, I still do. I push his music on every movie I do because music is such a big part of crafting a character for me. And so, of course, most of my characters, if not all of them, do listen to Pat's music. And, uh, so I remember at one point when he's like, we're doing the big premiere in London and you're going and why don't you invite the jazz butcher? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I will invite, I will invite the jazz butcher. So I wrote the, the, the uh, record company, I wrote Creation and they sent him the tickets and Pat showed up. And from then on that, from the moment we met kind of struck up this really great friendship. I mean, I almost didn't talk to him because he walked, you know, I remember it was after the premiere and it was at the Museum of Natural History in London and Roland goes, so have you seen Pat Fish yet? And I'm like, well, no, not yet. And then right then Pat and Kathy walked by because he was with Kathy McGinty back then. So they walked right by. I'm like, Roland, oh, Roland, that's him. He's like, we'll go talk to him. And I was like, I can't, I can't talk. I'm too, I'm too shy. I can't talk. So Roland just reaches over and grabs Pat and goes, Pat, Pat Fish. Hi, I'm Roland. I'm the director of the movie. Thank you for coming. This is Jimmy Duvall. He's also in the movie. This is your biggest fan. You guys hang out. And Pat and I went and had a beer and smoked a spleef. <laughs> that sparked off this incredible friendship where, yeah, I mean, for the rest of the trip in England, you know, and in, in London, for I was there for a week. So I spent the rest of the week pretty much every night hanging out with Pat. So the next night he wouldn't come to dinner with us, but invited me out to have drinks with him and Max. So my second night out, I go to meet him and Max. That's incredible. He is my number one favorite guitar player in the Mine world. too. Yeah, Mine too. By far. I love Johnny Marr, but Max has got this thing. It's just like. No, I, um, I'm with you on that. So I'm, I'm, you know, literally in nerd heaven and hanging out with him. And then at the point, at that point, I had gotten tickets from Michael Stipe because he was friends with Patti Smith and she happened to be playing in town at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. So the third night or fourth night, we were able to all go see Patti Smith <laughs> together. Yeah, it was, this is my first week in meeting Pat, by the way. And so we're going to see them. We had backstage passes and we go backstage to Patti Smith dressing room afterwards. And I remember sitting, and I was sitting there with Pat, sort of like, you go talk to him. It's like, I can't talk to you. You go talk to her. It's like, I can't. You. So we just sat there with like two fanboys, like the only one <laughs> hanging out for us. I don't know. We hung out for a while, but just couldn't muster the courage. We were happy to just be in the same room with her, to be quite honest. 
Wait, so so Patty, okay, so Michael Stipe, the connection was Stipe, because Stipe somehow knew, because I knew that, that Jazz Butcher played with R.E.M. a couple of times. Yeah, and I, I had related, I was, I haven't spoken to Michael in years either, but at the time he was, I had his film company that was producing a movie for Gregor Rocky, so we were hanging out with him a bit. Um, so I had, was able to relay messages between Pat and Michael back and forth saying hello a few times. Yeah, the Butcher played with R.E.M. I think in 85. I think they did a, a European tour with them. I would have loved to have seen those shows. Michael. Yeah, yeah, I would have I would have as well. I, yeah. I think Michael was a little surprised that I knew Pat at first, but he was like, oh, I like them. Yeah. yeah they, are, they are likable fellas. Very likable fellas. If you get them in the right mood. Like, I think back then was like the thing you didn't want to pass out around the JBC. If you drank around them, don't pass out around. You could find your eyebrow shaved off. <laughs> Maybe both. I can't believe you remember uh, the nights that you spent with those guys, because I would imagine you you had to drink a lot. We did, and we smoked a lot, too, throughout the, you know, we went back to Max's, I think, that first eve, the second evening, so the first night I met Max, but the second evening with Pat and Max, and after we drank and the pub closed, we went back to Max's and just listened to music and smoked hash till like three or four in the morning, and one, I mean, maybe one of the key advantages to be an actor is the memory, for me, is my memory. Because so, I remember after that, we both Roland Emmerich and I had flown to Mallorca to see the Mallorca show about a month later, uh, where the, at that point they had, the Jazz Butcher had broken up the band, but the people in Mallorca hadn't heard and flew out the band to do a show there. So we happened to be in Europe, so we flew down and met the guys there. <clears throat> and I do remember I have photos for that, which I'll post on the group in the Jazz Butcher group very shortly. I have to scan them. Uh, it was an one it was an incredible show it was incredible to hear max play the condition blue songs as to like wow that's what it would have heard with max in it oh my god yeah yeah so he does this lead guitar in harlan that's something else i still remember i wish i had a recording of it i still remember it and the, and girls say yes too and the thing is and girls say yes peter cruch's bird guitar on that is is perfect so it's really a treat and a joy to hear those kinds of later songs with you know max on them and then at the end of the night getting so completely obliteratingly drunk and not forgetting but remembering that gabriel turner and i from illuminate and sumo sonic had max's guitar and we were trying to play pass the guitar back back and forth playing max songs and pat was teaching me a couple of his songs like i asked pat how to play harlan correctly because i was playing it kind of really complicated he's like no mate it's much more simple than that <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad I remembered to play it later on because I had brought my guitar on the tour with us, but uh, I couldn't play it that night. I couldn't hold it. I was embarrassingly drunk, so much so that I know there's pictures because I found them of me hung over the next day and bloated on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the last photos on the roll. And I can tell you right now, Alex, it was worth every drop of drink. We drank I that bar. We drank the town dry. I imagine it was, and it, and your actor's brain, I'm glad that it retained the experience. Well, you know, to meet them, to see them, that was my first time seeing them play, because I just missed the Condition Blue Tour when they came through, Ugh. and it wasn't a U.S. tour after that. Um, so I'm, I was in heaven, and then also, I know when they were kind of breaking everything down, Duge came down, you know, the bass player from Waiting for the Love Bus, yep. and Condition Blue Tour, and he and I, because they were playing in a town square, ran to every single bar in the town square and did a shot. 
And I remember at one point where I was having trouble standing because I'm such a little guy compared to them. I'm barely five nine. Those those guys are huge. They're like you know six three, six two, six four. So I'm trying to keep up. <laughs> I need a move. <laughs> but I did not pass out, and I remember everything. I'm impressed. I mean, Pat was a big dude. Yeah, I'll, I'll post that. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll post again. I I think I did post a picture of. Pat and Mac next to me from the San Francisco show at the Great American Music Hall. I'm going to post more because I have more photos that I found from that tour as well. But yeah, you, they tower over me. <laughs> yeah, well, you, yeah, you've got an inch on me, so they tower over me too. Um, for your own music, did did the music that you love, did it start to influence what you were doing like with, with Gene Wilder? And like, is that, do you take the parts of the music like Wire and the Jazz Butcher, does it show up in what you do? It, it, it very much does so. Um, I know that before Gene Wilder, when I played in this, you know, the guy I was buying reefer from at the time because it wasn't legal. Uh, had, I met him in a studio and he needed a guitar player. And I remember my friend goes, he plays guitar. And so I kind of added like this kind of jazz butchery thing to it. I want to say kind of had more, like a little bit of a reggae feel too, but like the surf guitar thing. And I, just kind of recorded it and he loved it we went and recorded it in the black eyed peas studio and certainly there's a few songs because he was very you know which i understand he was very kind of particular about what i played you know it was always like yo stop doing that rock and roll stuff i'm like i'm a guitar player man so i don't i don't I'm not a hip-hop guy like that you know but i'm doing my best like pat was great at infusing the two together so that that was a big inf influence for me to try to do the same thing so there was certainly like i know for one one point i sent a song to pat and to max of this song demo we did called bumping and it was heavily max influenced like has like the slide guitar that max does in it i never ended up writing a lead for it because van broke up but i still have the demos and that was very heavily max influenced right in the middle of like this kind of george bensony hip-hop song because the band used live instruments so the guy sang hip-hop but the, the music was live bass, drums, guitars, uh, saxophones sometimes. Um, by the time I went to Gene Wilder, uh, I didn't write any music with Gene Wilder. That was all the, the singer, Brian. It was like his mastermind. So I kind of just played what was already written. I was kind of just like, I didn't have an opportunity to infuse any of my stuff really into it mm. in that sense. Because it was like a, at least for us, it was kind of like a joke band. It was like a fun band. Like we had the song, The Rebel Penis from Outer Space. <laughs> <laughs> that old Christmas gem. Yeah, yeah. And um, we had like this local scene here at the time called the Beachwood Rockers. And um, it was just a bunch of people locally from the community. This bar, this little stage, and you could go up four or five nights a week and just play music. And it's kind of similar to what Pat and them were doing in the early 80s. And they were all playing music with each other. Everybody come to each other's shows and, and play play with each other's bands. And it was a lot, it was a lot of fun doing that at the time. And so at least doing that, which I still play music now and was playing music then, but I only did it for myself. You know, I wasn't playing out or recording it. And kind of it was certainly the inspiration of Pat and his music that kind of brought me out again. And certainly I'm writing now I'm writing again, especially since Pat's passing is 
So Gene Wilder is not not an ongoing proposition. You're that's not a. Support. I wish it was. I mean, I, I mean, we talked about doing a possible reunion show. Gene Wilder had shortly became uh, Keith, like the Keith that you smoke, Keith Sweat, for a brief moment. <laughs> that's pretty good. So Gene Wilder had morphed into Keith Sweat for a moment, and then he kind of dissolved it, and then he just started. He's still doing music, but he did uh, started doing music with his brother in a project called Hacksaw and Duggan. Hmm. after these two wrestlers which music's nothing music's brilliant by the way but nothing like you would think when you think two wrestlers <laughs> you're right i mean I, I looked at what you're doing lately and it seems like you're really busy it seems like you're shooting a lot of movies it seems like there's a lot of work happening in your life um how have you managed to stay so busy during during like covid really i'm sure knocked the wind out of out of the acting sales for a while for a lot of people in music. Um, it, it, it did for me for a bit there as well. It did. I think uh, I was lucky in the sense that I think because I've been doing this so long, you know, I've, you know, which and reputation is important. I think people know if you, if you call me, I show up, you know, because half the job in this business really, I think in anything is just showing up, but you'd be surprised how many people don't show up. Really? Yeah, so they call me because they know I show up and I'm not going to charge them, you know, a million dollars. You know, I'm very affordable. I'm very affordable, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, I was so fortunately, and I love to work. So I say, yes, if I'm I'm not busy, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't be exercising my craft, you know, sort of like a musician. Uh, So I try to work as much as possible. Right before the pandemic, I'd done a pilot. And I think we were about to get picked up and I don't know what's going on. We were supposed to be filming by now, but it's been delayed. So hopefully that pilot goes in November. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, February next year. But when that happened, you know, I flew back at the end of February from filming in Buffalo and then everything stopped. And then I did a little movie in the summertime when everything kind of opened up in July. And then it was still quiet. I, yeah, I was quiet again for the rest of the year. And I had COVID at the end of December, which was horrible. Got over that. And then by March this year, the work started, even during the pandemic, started rolling in. So all I had to do was just text negative and I could, you know, work. And then, of course, I went and got, <clears throat> excuse me, vaccinated the moment they let my age group get vaccinated. So I was like, yeah, I can work. Same thing. I can work, you guys. I'm vaccinated. You're like, I'm, I want to, I just like, I, I want to, yeah, I'll show up. I'll, you know, I just want to work. And um, come summertime, all of a sudden, I got hit with a slew of four movies and a short and, you know, another, I think, oh, I also did another pilot last year <laughs> towards the end of the year as well. So I ended up doing a pilot during the, you know, right before I, a month before I got sick and a month pretty much before the pandemic really hit. So I was lucky to have kind of squeezed those in. You um you seem like a very healthy, fit guy. When you had COVID, did it freak you out? What was that something that really did that really throw you off in terms of your? I mean, obviously you can, your fitness routine gets screwed up, but also your your health in general is something that becomes. You yeah, know. It, was, it was interesting for me. It really did. It did something. To, it's not like anything I've ever had for me personally. Being sick for a month, uh, being positive for a month. Um, it was psychological, there was something psychological in the way, and I'm sure some of it's because of what we were going through that I experienced that I've not experienced 
being ill with anything else um, that came along with the, I think I lost about 10 or 15 pounds because I have weights here. So the moment I got COVID, I had to stop lifting weights. Then I lost all, you know, I was trying to stay fit for, because I had done the pilot. I had this other pilot. I wanted these, I had these other movies coming out. So it's kind of like keeping your instrument tuned since I'm my own instrument, which is, you know, you were saying it's important for, for me to be physically healthy and try to be mentally, you know, clear and healthy as well because my body's my instrument so doing all those things during the pandemic eating right sleeping right working out doing yoga you know which i still do through zoom um i had to stop all that when i got covid everything um and it probably i so i recovered at the end of december and i started doing yoga again in february i still had physical problems so any sort of physical ailment i've had in the last 20 or 30 years flared up within the first 90 days of recovering from COVID. Really? Eye like, thing, elbow thing, everything. It came back and went away, but came back. So I had to literally deal with this issue again. But every sort of physical ailment I've had flared up. Then I finally got over that. And I'm happy to say, and for quite a few months now, I gained all my weight back. I'm back to doing yoga and lifting weights. I've got my weight. You know, I'm back to lifting what I was lifting and doing the yoga pretty much at the level I was at. I would say I'm about 90 or 95% now. But, How was that on your, on your psyche? I mean, that must have been a really dark period of time. It was very, very dark for me. It was very difficult. Um, it, you do, you know, not in the same way as having cancer for our friends and loved ones who've been through that, but you do start to look at your mortality. You start to perceive your life in a different way. And because there was a couple days where I, you know, the, the hospitals were completely overflowed here and I was having trouble breathing. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't. It took me, it took me down. And I, so I went through the thing where I had it for a week, started, thought I was getting better, still was not, still was positive, not tested negative. And then it really slapped me down for another probably two weeks, took me out even worse. So it was the second wave of it that hit me that really got me. And I remember, so I tested positive on December 30th. No, December 30th, I was uh, positive. And then finally, January 2nd, I tested my first negative, now that I think of it. So it was December 2nd to January 2nd. And Pat did his show on December 31st. Mm -hmm. And that was a big thing for me too. I think I have a video of it. I never ended up posting it or sending it to Pat, but I was in tears watching the show, thanking Pat because I was so thankful to be watching Pat, you know, this idea that I might not get a chance to see him again, you know, and, you know, we were talking, sort of talking about it. And, you know, I'm not ashamed of the tears that fall for that man. He's, a, he was an incredible musician and a wonderful friend. Yeah. Just a, a really special person. Um, for you, in terms of self-preservation, you and I are very similar in age. Um, do you think about that stuff? Like, do you still go out and and drink the way you drank with Pat, or do, are you really careful now about that kind of stuff because of just because of self-protection and self-preservation? Yeah, you know, I think well, drinking was very much a social thing for me. I think you know, in the last few days, celebrating Pat and you know, for the tribute show, and you know, I've done a couple things where I've done a couple Zooms where I talked to Dave Coverly and to Max Eider, to Peter Milson. You know, so for those things, I will have a drink, have a few drinks. 
Um, I think every time I do some, I, when I've got together with a few friends now, we have, we certainly drink over Pat, but not to the degree I was before the pandemic, I have to say, but mostly because I can't spend my time when I'm not working. Because I do, I'll go lift weights and do yoga class and then I'll be at the bar drinking after. <laughs> eat, eat a good meal and then I'm having, geez, I can drink three or four pints and I'm fine. I can have some whiskey and then go back and work out the next day. Um, but I, that all stopped when the pandemic hit. I certainly still probably smoke a similar amount you know of uh, uh sure like pat the highest in the land i think um funny story you know i'm not ashamed to say so when we were at the san francisco show in great but the great american music hall the first time in 97 they were gifted you know what they called the executor mm -hmm. a little suitcase with the drinks in it and i remember drinking out of that with them because we stayed in the same hotel with them so every night we drank with them over the weekend in the room <clears throat> and when they had and we went back, of course, in 99. And then when they were touring in 2001, they had come and Max was staying with Steve Valentine downtown and he was recording Hotel Figueroa. And my friend Gary, who turned me on to the jazz, which are 92 and Shiva Harari's father's Jaguar, who also had met Pat before me. And he's kind of the one who told me about Pat and inspired me as well as playing the music to me, had now reconnected with Pat and we're all together. And I remember going down town because Pat brought this up the last time I saw this, saw him at Fishy Mansions in the back patio. And he had his marijuana version of the executaire. So Pat and Max had the suitcase that opened sideways and Gary had his stainless steel silver suitcase that he opened up and it was just pillowcases of weed. <laughs> 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 And I remember Pat's eyes, and I, I mean, my eyes were like, all of our eyes were like, you know, and then my friend Gary, who turned us on, you know, turned me on to Pat, was just like, of course, guys, you know, I've been telling you I've had this the whole time, you know, and not as a side note, but I also had, when I had met Gary before he turned me on to the Jazz Butcher, I met Gary buying 100 hits of acid from him, you know, hits <laughs> like the palm of your head. I remember being 19, and that's what ended up why we kind of ended up hanging out after that he came and picked me up shortly after and turned me on the jazz because we started i mean there's a strange thing you buy 100 hits off someone like most might possibly be one of your best friends for life and i kind of so i knew that so i'm like you know we're going to be friends for life <laughs> <laughs> if i survive this yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll be very good for, and are you still friends with you're obviously you're still friends i i was just texting back and forth with him today we're gonna have a drink perhaps tomorrow uh, and raise a glass and have a smoked pat. Have you been able to maintain friendships in this business? I have, with some people I've been able to maintain them, not many, it is like, it's incredible. Pat and Max is, you know, they really are like their wisdom. You know, so Max wrote it on Count Me Out, uh, the last Jazz Butcher album from Last the Gentleman. Uh, adventurers is all um you basically says you're lucky to find three you know lucky to find a friend in life well well i've found three or four so i don't have a great group but i did find a handful of people that i'm still as close with as ever it's uh we never get distance even if we fall out of touch for a time greg Araki's one of them still friends with greg that's amazing oh yeah i, I just texted him 
today as well. That's so it's cool. It's close as we've as we've ever been. And you know, I was it, it breaks my heart. You know, I don't mean to be bittersweet or carry on about this. I'll be short, but you know, having it, it was having recently reconnected with Pat. I was planning on a trip out to Fishy Mansions to go visit him and meet Deeran. You know, face to face. I'm still going to go see Deeran. I'm still going to go visit the NN one. That hasn't changed, but it's going to be bittersweet this time. Oh yeah. 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 And, and yeah. And, and their friendship is really, I really hope someone documents it in a film. I just think it'd be such an amazing story. I'm, I, I think this was taught, this was spoken about during a zoo. Uh, there's going to be another zoom group meeting, by the way, they did an oh, experimental run through one and at the experimental run through just to see how it would work. And it wasn't that chaotic to be quite honest. So it works. If I was, if I'm not mistaken, I think someone is making a documentary. Oh, good. There is a doc being made on Pat and Butcher and out of the NN1 and whatnot. So they will be in contact with people throughout the list and whatnot. You know, That's and great. Whatnot. And there's plenty of footage that exists. And of course, um, with Buren is going to be a big part of it. Oh, good. That, that makes me so happy. And for you, you mentioned doing pilots. Pilot season's almost upon us. Does pilot season still exist in the same way it used to or is it different now i mean i the only reason i don't i would say no is because tv's all year round now i mean you still yeah. have pilot season for the networks but you know hbo hulu amazon they make tv shows all year round so it's kind of always pilot season to some degree yeah yeah and i love that you're staying busy and i love that you are I mean, I would imagine Independence Day probably opened up some doors for you, but now it just seems like you're you you really are just having steady work, which is fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Alex. I I, I mean, honestly, it's, I'm I'm humbled, and I can't believe I'm still doing it. But as long as people keep hiring me, <laughs> you know, they haven't called me this big fake. Uh, I'll keep doing it. But you know, in a lot of other ways too. You know, and this is what's so also so great to see. You know, everything is. Pat's done is just keeps getting better and better and it's like I hope that my ability to perform and create you know and create characters follows the same trajectory you know because that's all my hope is to just kind of get better over time and I think I feel a lot more comfortable and I feel like I have gotten a lot better than I used to be as an actor so it's a, it's it's always a joy I don't have these kind of nervous moments anymore not with any actor or any filmmaker of whether the set's big or small i've been just i've just been doing it so long that for me in a lot of ways it's that's where i'm most happiest is once i walk on set and i'm creating it i couldn't be more happier there's the prep behind that certainly uh and i enjoy the prep but really the, the job as an actor is is the prep and then when the execution when you're filming it and then you walk off set and unlike plays or anything else, it's done kind of like recording an album. You have no control of what happens after that. And you just have to let it go. It's out of your hands. It's out of, it's out of your hands. Although I must say, cause uh, this is one of the greatest things about Pat's new album coming out is uh, Gunther from Tapete Records has let, you know, of course, as we know, Pat make exactly the album he wanted to make with the players he wanted to have and producer he wanted to have exactly the way he wanted to have it. So this last album's something special. I have a piece that I, I've written where I compare the first single. I think it's the Jazz Butcher's Tower of Song. Like it's- I'm gonna agree with you. 
right? It, I'm, work, I'm working on the essay. I don't know if the essay threads the needle the way it should, but I'm going to try. What's incredible, it's, it's might be the Jazz Butcher's second attempt at commercial suicide after Cult of the Basement, and he's failed again miserably because <laughs> time might be one of the most commercial things he's ever made. It is, I know. It's incredible, and it's an uh, like all of Pat's stuff, it's incredible. Yeah, it's uh, you're right about that. It, it's so catchy and it's so commercial. Um, and then I was curious for you, were you surprised that that the character in Donnie Darko was so resonant even after all these years that it still is this kind of evergreen cult kind of um, character that you played? It's, you know, honestly, in fact, I'm here bringing my little friend into this, if you don't mind. I just have him kind of tucked away sometimes. But I have to say that- There he is. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't imagine in a million years that there would be this sort of response that carried on. You know, it's, I'm, I'm beyond humbled to be quite honest. Um, I always loved the script. You know, it didn't say what he looked like visually except that he was a rabbit. So I didn't know he looked like that until later on. But I gotta say from the moment I read the script and the film is even much more so as true as it is to the script, that it always read to me as, a successful retelling of a Twilight, modern day Twilight Zone, which we didn't really get since Rod Serling. They were interesting, but they never really hit in the way that the original Twilight Zones had hit. And when I read the script and when we made it and when I watched it for the first time, it, that's how it played to me. It was just a modern day Twilight Zone episode, but as a movie. Yeah, and I think of Donnie Darko as is to movies as what the Jazz Butcher is to music. There's this sort of like this call, it wasn't a huge raging success but it remains kind of evergreen in this kind of cult way. I, well, I am proud to say that I was listening to a lot of Jazz Butcher while I was making that movie. Um, I had just gotten back from seeing the last part of their tour in New York at the Mercury Lounge. And uh, yeah, that was the 2000 tour because I had driven, I missed them in Hoboken and I missed the rest of the tour because I was filming a movie in Oklahoma. So when I finished the movie, the director and I rented a van and I drove straight to New York and I made that New York show. <laughs> I've heard that New York show was legendary. It was great. Max was walking around with this paper cutout beard. <laughs> and he played God, why? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it was the last, it was, it was the last leg of that Euros tour where they playing with the full band. So it was really for the second time. So it was really, really it was nice to have them there. And they were playing the stuff off of Rotten Soul that was about to come out. And uh, Nikki Sutton was cool. You liked working with him? I loved working with Nikki was a sweetheart. He really was. I, we stayed in the same hotel. And so we, you know, and I was there for about a week and I filmed for about three out of the five days. So we got to eat, you know, eat and hang out and drink wine together. And yeah, he's he's quite a charming fellow. He'll, you never get, you know, which is true. You never caught him in a t-shirt because he'll never wear a t-shirt in his life but <laughs> i think pat wouldn't either in the later years yeah quite quite a charming fellow and chock full of style always dressed to the nines even when he didn't look like he was he was i got into the swell maps um later there were there I, I there's so many bands that i've had to like go back and rediscover i'm still making my way through the fall catalog and just going like wow there's I, hard how great are they it's the same thing for me too i'm still making my way through going my god how did i miss all of this stuff i know i know it, it's marky smith is legend <laughs> he's incredible <laughs> another guy who just didn't really care what anybody thought and i just well, I love, the very that. End, love that man <laughs> i know i know incredible 
Um, dude, I'm so stoked that you came on the show and chatted with me. I've, I've wanted to chat with you for a long time. And I'm, I'm sad that we had to meet over the death of our, our pal, Pat Fish, but I'm glad we've connected. Oh, Alex, I can't, I can't, uh, honestly, I'm humbled that you wanted to talk to me and uh, thank you. Cause it was such a great conversation. It's always great to talk about Pat and the band with another fan. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's one of the things I enjoy the most. I have to say that coming back on Facebook and being a part of jumping on with the Jazz Butcher group, I'm honestly not just surprised, but I'm quite moved by the, the people are so genuinely lovely on there. I, it's like a community that I've not honestly experienced before. I think it's informed by... Pat's loveliness. I think there it's a mirror of his own personality and the way he treated people. It's it's really yeah, it's, I, I, it's really something special. They're all really uh, you all are really something special. And I mean I that's how I met you too, you know, fortunately and so here Pat even in death he's still bringing all of us together, which is one of the magical things that you know where he's always going to be with us because he's going to be doing this as long as his music is alive. There you go. James Duvall. What a nice guy. Uh, great conversation. Really enjoyed that. And I've always been a big fan of his work. Do you know it? Do you know his stuff? You probably know some of it at least. Well, if you don't know all of it, there's plenty of it. So go to his IMDb, dig around, and uh, check out the movies he's in. He has terrific presence. He has a very chameleon-like persona. He can kind of uh, inhabit a role where you don't know it's him. And then you go, oh, that's James Duvall. I know he's working on some stuff now. There's always some cool James Duvall movie projects coming down the pike. So keep informed, watch his IMDb, and search out his work. You can search out my work at alexgreenonline.com. There is a new book coming out, a lot of news around that uh, coming up in the next few weeks. So get ready for me to bore you with my own self-promotion uh, about my new book. The book isn't boring, but the promotion of it, uh, that's sure to be tiresome, so brace yourself. Uh, bombshellradio.com is where you need to go to find out what makes our radio station tick. Please follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms, go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell every single person you come into contact with. Now, I know during that conversation, James and I talked a little bit about the death of Pat Fish, so I thought I'd pick up the tempo here and go for one of the more buoyant Jazz Butcher conspiracy numbers. So enjoy this one. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. It
get us started, it would help us all a lot if you'd understand there's a conspiracy in pop. They work worldwide and they're on TV. The jazz bunch of conspiracy from Oslo to Rome, New York to Berlin. When the conspiracy knocks, somebody always lets us in. Armed and loaded with philosophy to consider the big ones so seriously. In the world of science, there's something going on. It's the egg potato phenomenon. So if you don't know the ratio potato to egg, you better shape up now. Somebody's pulling your leg. In and everything turns as ugly as sin You'll be alright You'll be alright What you gonna do when the bus breaks down And it's four in the morning in a foreign town You'll be alright You'll be alright There's a pain in your head, there's a hole in the road You gotta look at this thing in philosophical mode And you'll be alright You'll be alright When circumstance gets you on your back You gotta roll, roll, roll for the exit jack And you'll be alright Yeah, you'll be alright Questions. They bother in you and they bother in me and they even bother people at the BBC. Big questions, big questions. Yeah. 